Are you recording already? Yeah. Three, two, one. You're listening to the Paula and Jay Money Show. We'd rather be at a bar with you right now, but this is the next best thing. It's Financial Freedom Time with Paula Pant and Jay Money. What up, Jay? What's up, Paula P? I am so excited for this guy that we've got coming up on today's show. My boy, Tom Corley. I love this dude. I did not know who he was until you told me about him, Jay, and I started looking him up. This guy's life story is fascinating. When he was nine years old, his family went from being multimillionaires to being broke in the span of one single night. And when I say broke, I don't mean like, oh, we can't afford the coolest shoes broke. I mean... His father was seriously contemplating suicide level of broke. That's crazy. I had no idea about any of that stuff until uh, you pretty much just told me. (laughs) (laughs) Damn. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I was fascinated about by his story based on his past, his childhood. But you found him based on what he's doing today. Yeah, I found him on Twitter talking about all these different habits of millionaires, um, good stuff they do, the stuff they don't do. Found his blog, richhabits.net, two or three years ago. And I was obsessed with this, so I kept blogging about it. And then we just started talking. And I've never talked to him on the phone or on a podcast or anything. Um, but he just seemed, you know, he's a really, his backstory of how he got this book out the door, like, is fat, like, hundred, like, literally thousands of, like, failures and thousands of no's this dude got. And he pushed through it all and like became like awesome at the end. That is amazing. Cool. Let's bring him on. Let's uh, let's hear it from his own words. Yeah, I don't want to talk to you anymore. I want to talk to Tom. Hey, Tom. Hey, Paula. Hey, Jay. Thanks for having me on your show. I appreciate it. We love your accent, dude. Where are you calling from? Where are you hailing from these days? You got me at my office in Rahway, New Jersey, which is kind of central New Jersey, but I was born and raised in New York, so that's what you're hearing, unfortunately. <laughs> My New York accent. I like it. Now I'm going to think of it every time I'm reading all your tweets and your emails and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> you're going to know I mean business when I <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> you saying something versus me is way different. Yeah, I'm more likely to listen to you fast. <laughs> Thanks for coming on the show, man. We've known each other for a few years, and I've been reading your books and following your blog and Twitter, and you've just been a... Uh, just a wealth of information, man. We're hoping to pull some nuggets out of you on this on this podcast. I appreciate that. And you're you're one of the first ones out of the gate that I can look back to that really tried to help me get some some of the exposure there. And every time you post something that I write or that you write um related to my research, it goes my website goes crazy. So <laughs> you've got a lot of influence out there, whether you know it or not. See, I feel like I found the little the little diamond in a rough and got to tell the world about it. Although I've seen you've been on these other podcasts lately. I thought we were going to be the first to have you. And no, my friend, you've been all over the place. I like I it. think I've done about 150 podcast interviews. And how wow. many in the personal finance niche, like in the blogging niche? Do you think there's a big chunk um, there? Probably about 20 to 20. I mean, they, okay. it's hard to say it's 20, 25%, but you know, it doesn't end up just focusing on money. But uh, yeah, there, there's a lot of money podcasters out there that want me on. And I, you know, we end up talking about the rich habits and other stuff. Yeah, dude, that's exactly what we want to get into too. Right, Miss Paula P? Absolutely. But first, Tom, I want to know a little bit more about, about you. So when you were nine years old, your family went from being multimillionaires to being broke in one night. 
What the hell happened? <laughs> oh, my God. I remember it like it was yesterday. Now, you know, my dad in today's dollars was probably worth around 20 to $25 million. Oh, my wow. God. But back then it was like $4 million or so. His thing is he was a real entrepreneur. He was an accountant, but he was a real entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. And he was really good at overseeing and administrating things. In fact, he ran nine congressional campaigns for a congressman and a he ran a mayoral campaign for Mayor Beam, and he was even involved in RFK's campaign. So the, my dad was really had a lot of skill sets, a lot of um, a lot of good traits. Mm -hmm. But you know, life has a way sometimes of you know pulling the rug out from underneath you, and and that's exactly what happened one night when I was in the third grade. I was nine years old, and my dad had he had actually sold his business. Right. Well, what was his business? He was a distributor with tools throughout the East Coast. He was one of the main distributors and, and um, he was, very, you know, did very well. He knew what he was doing and he managed it. And what happened is his partner, he uh, died of a, of a heart attack oh. at the age of 39. Mm. And my dad was smart enough to know that, hey, heck, I'm not a salesman. I'm, I'm great at running a business. I'm just not good at selling. So he sold the business and he got about $5 million for it. So far, so good. Yeah, sounds great, right? And he got, you know, he got his first payment, which was like one point six million dollars or something like that. Plus, he already had probably a two million dollars in the bank. And then uh, they stopped paying. And in the contract, the way he had written it, if they failed even on one payment, the business reverted back to my dad. Mm -hmm. So uh, he took the business back after about, a, I guess, about a year, almost a year mysteriously, the business, the warehouse burnt to the ground about three, four weeks later. Wow. And, you know, I don't know. You if have you, air quotes in that mysteriously. <laughs> oh, yeah. We, we know what happened. Okay. You know, it was just, you know, they were pissed off that they had to give the business back. And Right. But, you know, when my dad took the business back, he had done things a certain way. One of the things that he had done is he always paid his vendors with cash. He never went out on credit. Well, wow. when he got the business back, there was like $4 million in inventory, which is what he had, you know, when he was running the business. So there was no surprise there. But what he was surprised by was the fact that all the inventory was on credit. When the warehouse burned down, my dad was on the hook. Wow. He was the owner of the business. And then the other thing he found out was the insurance that he had on the inventory and the business these guys didn't carry it. He got pennies on, on the dollar. He, well, he got virtually nothing uh, after 18 months of pursuing the insurance companies through legal battles and stuff like that. But the one thing I remember, Jay and Paula, was the first thing my dad did was he he stroked a check for $4 million to all these vendors. Oh, my gosh. And years later, I remember when I was, I guess, in my early forties. And I was, we were sitting at my dad's house and I, w I was talking to him. I said, boy, you know, that was, you know, do you think that was a mistake in hindsight? Would you, would you have done things differently? And he said, no, those vendors, they had families that had mortgages, you know, why put them in a financial situation just because I've got problems and I had the money at the time and I was very confident I could, you know, turn things around. And mm. so, you know, that was my dad, though. My dad was always about the other person. He was more concerned about you, Jay, or you, Paula, than he was about himself. Mm. And so he, he, you know, basically wiped himself out, spent 18 months trying to get some money out of the insurance company, failed. And, and really, the powerful 
emotion behind this story is is when my dad was telling me that w- when he lost his last battle in court, he was in Brooklyn at the time and didn't have enough money even to get back to Staten Island with a cab or anything. So oh my lord, he didn't you know he didn't have a car. We he lost everything. So he walked. He had uh, I think fifty cents, and he walked over the Brooklyn Bridge to go to the Staten Island Ferry, which was about five miles away. He said that he remembered stopping in the middle of the bridge. And if you've ever been on the Brooklyn Bridge, you, you can't literally jump off the bridge. It's kind of <laughs> hard to do. But my dad said, I thought I thought about jumping off the bridge. Wow. A- and then I was looking down there trying to figure out how I would even do it. Uh, and I, then I, he said, I saw all these uh, crests of the waves capping. And uh, he said, I saw... Each one of your faces, there were eight in my family. And he said, I just took my foot off the rail and I turned around and I kept walking. Thank God. And, and thank God is right. You know, we, you know, he, we ended up surviving. Somehow my father was able to, to keep the house. But we had, we were literally every two to three months, some real estate agent knocking on our door to show the house because we were in foreclosure like all the time. Wow. Uh, but the, one of the rich habits my dad has was he was an incredible relationship builder. It took some time, but a lot of people just like it's a wonderful life. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's why it's my favorite movie. It reminds me of, you know, my dad when things really got bad and we were about to lose our house, people just came up with the money and, and kept us in our house. And this went on for, Oh my gosh, from the time I was nine to the time I was 23, I suppose. You know, but the good news is my dad, he recovered. He was almost a millionaire when he recovered, not quite, but uh, he ended up finishing up his life, you know, not so bad, decent shape, and, you know, had a little bit of money at the end. Not much, but a little bit. Right. uh, it It wasn't the worst thing in the world. It was hard on us, the kids, because we all had to figure out our how to pay for college, and we did. I was a janitor. My brother Jack was a janitor and did some other. Wow, good for you, man! Your whole yeah. family, damn. But we're survivors, you know. And and it's and I have to say, it comes from my grandfather, who I'm named after, Thomas Christopher Corley, who at the age of 19 left his country in Ireland uh, and came to New York City. And I can you guys think about put yourself in his shoes at age 19, leaving the United States to say go to China. No, I would die. <laughs> or, or some somewhere else, that, you know, maybe an English-speaking place, but somewhere else. I mean, can you imagine the courage? Mm. So I guess it's kind of in our genes that we're just going to survive no matter what. And uh, I, I think actually all humans have that gene. Yeah. But, um, you know, it was uh, quite an experience that we went through. And I'm, I'm not sure I can say it was a good experience, or, you know, one of these character-building experiences. I don't know. <laughs> I, I still – the jury's out on that. I, my story's still not finished. We'll see. We'll see how, how it all pans out in the end. I think a better word for the survivor is, is hustler, if hustler. I may. Hustler, <laughs> yeah. You guys, man, to get through that. You know, and you're right, like the money sucks and all that stuff, but like knowing the difference between like would you rather be in debt or in foreclosure versus like without your dad – I mean, as a parent, like I have two kids myself, three and a half and one and a half. Mm -hmm. And like just the thought of them like scraping their knee, like I almost start crying. Like it kills me, you know, so to like me do something that gets me out of my own family. It would just, oh man, I can't even imagine. So good for him for making that decision and and just, you know, dealing with it all, especially after doing such a damn good deed too. That's what's crazy about it all. Right. Yeah. Well, he did the right thing. You, You know, Jay and Paula, he did the right thing. There were a lot of families that would have gotten hurt. 
four million dollars is a lot of money. You tell a vendor I can't pay you five hundred thousand dollars. Yes. You know that could be financially ruinous for them. So my dad, you know, he he knew it wasn't uh, their fault. And he wasn't going to put it on them. And he could have also filed for personal bankruptcy because at that point, his debts exceeded his assets. But that wasn't the way he was. Wow. It's crazy, man. Well, speaking about hustling and stuff, I think one of the first articles I came across your site was how it took you like nine years. Like you had this idea for this book and I'll let you talk about it more because you can do it better than I can. But you had this idea of this book and you spent nine years trying to get the word out. And then finally you had one or two breaks that kind of, exploded and kind of went yeah. everything to go viral. Um, it was not because I shared it, although that would be cool. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think I was early on, but not that early. Uh, but, but talk about like the process of, of going through it. And like, I had, I remember it was like, you sent out like hundreds of calls here, a thousand emails there, 10,000 tweets, you know, and then finally one person came to the rescue kind of thing. Yeah. I have to tell you this book business, this author business, this is really very much a startup business when you write a book and then you follow it up with other books as I've done. But it really is a business. It's nothing more than, than a product, the book. Now, the quality of the product is the quality of the content with respect to a book. So, you know, I, I, from a business standpoint, I knew that. I knew going in, this is really a startup. And I thought to myself, hey, you know what? This is going to be a little ironic. I'm going to apply the rich habits <laughs> to this startup. I call the rich habits author business. Okay. And I did. And one of the rich habits is to pursue your dreams and build goals around your dreams. So I came up with all these different dreams that I wanted and then I built goals around them. And then I started pursuing the goals, which is nothing more than taking action. Right. Right. So um, I kept doing this and I kept doing this sometime in 2000 and the end of 2011, maybe mid 2011. I was really so frustrated with this business, with this author business. It's unlike any other business that I've ever started or ever gone into. You have so little control over the outcome. The only thing you can control is your your inputs, the effort you put in to the business. And I, so I said, well, I can't control the outcome. Uh, I can't get inside some media person's head and say, hey, I got a great article. Get it out there or interview me. Right. It just doesn't happen that way. So I just... Um, what, what, what my approach was, was I'm going to write content. I'm going to try and write the best content I possibly can off of my research. And then I'm going to tweet the crap out of it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir. I like it. And, and the funny thing is, like, so you think, okay, tweeting doesn't cost any money, but there's an emotional cost that I can't even put in <laughs> words. I will say this. By the time I tweeted maybe 23,000 times, I had not gotten one response from anybody that said, hey, this is interesting. We'd like to interview you. Nobody in the media. That's incredible. Wow. That was about at the midpoint to the third quarter of 2011. And I said, I, this is crazy. I, I, what am I wasting my time doing this stuff for? I was really going to quit. I actually took a little bit of a hiatus and wrote uh, another book, an ebook called The uh, Top 100 Cheapest Places to Retire in the U.S., which was really a great book. I, I sold 7,000 copies of that in like 10 minutes. Oh, it's so oh. less sexy than Millionaire Habits. And, and <laughs> <Right>. habits. <laughs> I, I and, never picked that up. I'd pick about the rich one every single day. Well, you know, I, if there's a lot of boomers out there, so I guess they were yeah. interested in it. And, the, and what happened, though, that kind of reinvigorated me was I had gotten 
one interview with AOL. They did a TV interview. And I went on my PayPal and I was like watching the casinos at Atlantic City, you know, (laughs) all of these things started clicking. I was like, holy mackerel, how many are here? I couldn't even count them. There was so many. It took me like maybe three days to count. And I said, there's 7,000 here. Wow. Uh, And so then I said, wow, it is all about the media. So I, I got an email from someone who had read Rich Habits, two people that had read Rich Habits, and they said that it had changed their lives, right? Awesome. Uh, and then in the comments, they said, you know, your book reminded me a lot of The Wealthy Barber, Only Better. Wow, that's a classic mm. book. It is. I know that now. I didn't know <laughs> what, who The Wealthy Barber was, right? Okay. So, I, of course, I went out and got the book, and then I, I did some research, and I f- found out who the author was. Somehow, I got his email address, right? <laughs> so I forwarded, I forwarded him the, the two emails uh, that I got that basically said, you know, my book is better than your book. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the question I had in, in the email, if my book is better than your book, how is it possible that you sold two and a half million copies and I, <laughs> and I have maybe, maybe a thousand copies sold? <laughs> So I shot the email off. It was more than anything, it was my way of venting. Right? Yes, uh, so I got a call from David Chilton, the author of The Wealthy Barber, within wow. five minutes of him receiving that email. Wow. In fact, I had gotten up from sending the email. I went to get a cup of coffee, and my secretary was trying to reach me on my phone. She said, Tom, are you there? There's someone named Chilton on the line. So I said, Chilton? <laughs> Who the hell is Chilton? I was like, oh, David Chilton. So I picked up the phone and we had about maybe no more than a five or 10 minute conversation. And I asked him all sorts of questions. Yeah. But the one thing I remember him saying is, do you believe in your book? And I said, I believe in it. Like there is no such thing as a thousand percent, but I believe in it like a thousand percent. Right. And he said, do you think it's a great book? I said, it's as good a book as I could have written at the time. And, you know, maybe, maybe it's a great book. I don't know. I'll, but I think it's a great book. He said, well, that's all that matters. Uh, he said, you have to conquer uh, the media. And he said, the media are four things. It's TV, radio, it's the internet now, and it's uh, print. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, you have to, he said, by the way, you have to tackle all four at the same time. Mm. And I said, jeez, oh, I mean, thanks for that. I mean, that's that easier <laughs> said than done, right? But he did reinvigorate me. He told me to read a book, which I had read like three times, but I read it again. It was A Thousand and Ways to... Uh, to promote your book by some guy named Pointner. Okay. So I read the book again over the weekend. And besides David Chilton's name, now I know why he wanted me to read the book. His name was all over that book. Okay. Uh, there was another guy named Alex Carroll. He was famous because he had sold 250,000 books, How to Beat the Cops. Uh, ah. It was uh, you know basically how to get out of the tickets, right? But he did it all through the radio. And so I bought his program, all in, it cost me like $1,000. I got his radio list of all the radio stations, the contact information of all the hosts. And so I spent uh, probably a year and a half making phone calls. Oh, my God. I figured I spent about 1,500 hours making phone calls to these radio shows. That's incredible. And uh, I got about 150 interviews. I didn't sell many books, almost none, except for one radio station. I sold 700 books. but okay. So I looked at that as a complete failure. Mm. And uh, I, I was then, once again, in 
you know, the depths of depression. But then I ran into uh, someone who was really into what I was doing and she had some great ideas. And so she kind of helped me refocus on what I was doing. And so I kept, she said, just keep at it, keep at it. So I kept at it and I kept tweeting, which was still wasn't, you know, I was up to probably 30,000 at that point. And then at the point when I was really just going to quit and say, this is, look, besides the 150 radio shows, I can't get media attention. It's just impossible. I don't know anybody. I can't pay somebody 10, 15,000 a month as a publicist to get me these shows, interviews. I had kids in college. That, that was my priority. So I said, well, you know, I guess that's it. I'm just not, what can I do? I, I, I've got to throw in the towel and refocus my energy back into my core business. And, but at that moment, I got a tweet back from Farnoosh Tarabe. Mm-hmm, who Paul and I are very familiar with. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, very cool. Tweet. And she followed it up with an email. And it was right in the heart of tax season, 2013, I remember. I had gotten a lot of these emails like, from people whose names I, I couldn't pronounce and who I didn't know who the heck they were. Right. And I just assumed that they, you know, she was just one of those because every time I followed up with them, they led to dead ends. And I remember mentioning it to my friend and my person that was kind of acting as my publicist. And she said, Farnoosh Tarabe, she's huge. And I said, well, she tweeted me and emailed me and she wants me to do an interview for Yahoo Finance. So <laughs> we ended up, that was at the point when I was ready to quit. That was the one tweet response out of, say, 30,000 that I got. I did the interview. They uh, released it in July 16th of 2013. And within 24 hours, it had over 2 million hits. They had never had on that show, never, never more than 400,000 hits. I asked them, you know, the producer, Kate Sanichin, I said, Kate, what can I expect? And she said, you might, you know, if, if it's good and people are interested in it, You'll get somewhere between ten and fifty thousand hits. We've we've never had more than four hundred thousand hits. So wow, she was trying to manage my expectations. Oh hell yeah! But boy, when it started to go viral, uh, I got all sorts of calls and emails from Kate and and Farnoosh, and they were like, "This is amazing!" And it didn't stop there. I two days later, I come home from a late meeting, and my wife says to me, "Hey." You got to call back some guy named Dave Ramsey. <laughs> I said, uh, I don't, I said, I don't, I was scratching my head. I said, Dave Ramsey. I said, I don't have any clients named Dave Ramsey. I said, you know what, you know what it was about or no, but my girlfriend called. She, she heard him on the radio talking about you today. Wow. And, and I said, you mean Dave Ramsey to radio? radio? I said, oh, so I tried to reach uh, his producer, Blake Thompson that night. I think I got his daughter. I'm pretty sure it was his daughter, Dave's daughter. So the next day, Blake called me and he said, yeah, we want to get you on Friday. Can, can you come on Friday? I said, you bet your ass I can come Hell on. Oh, yeah. So he said, Dave is only going to give you like five or ten minutes. Well, he had me on for a half an hour. Ah. What was funny was one of my best friends was uh, – CPAs listen to Dave Ramsey. We all listen to him. Okay. He was in his car at a park waiting for his son to finish up his cross-country and he was listening to Dave Ramsey that Friday. And he said, I, I almost passed out when I started hearing you on the radio. <laughs> it was kind of funny. So it, I think that because of that, I sold probably a 10 or between 10 and 12,000 books in about a two-week period off wow. of those two things. It was, it was really momentarily I was pulled out of my cave. Mm. Uh, and, and then that resulted in CBS called. 
they wanted to, to interview me. So I shot up to Boston. I did an interview there. That really took off. They liked it so much. They ran it in eight of their affiliates. And, you know, Damn. that just kept going and going for, for like a year uh, because of all that stuff. Darren Hardy at Success Magazine wanted to interview me. And I, so I did an interview with him. They, I wrote an article that they they put in their Success Magazine's uh, November edition. And, uh, my gosh, it was just like my head was spinning for, for like a year and a half, two years almost. And then you got on the Heart and Hustle podcast. Yeah. And now you're at your pinnacle. <laughs> <laughs> See how far I've come? <laughs> so uh, what do you think, why was it that your video with Farnoosh went viral? The rich habits, I'm telling you, the rich, I have, although it seems like I've gotten a lot of publicity, they've come from about five or six places. Mm-hmm. When I do a national interview, let's say, mm-hmm. it really resonates with people because they're hearing this stuff for the first time. This stuff is really uh, something that they get. They understand it. It's different. It's something unique that nobody else is talking about. So although I haven't had many national TV interviews, every time I have one, it goes viral. It just because when it gets out there, the people are interested in it. So my mission is really just to try and and keep getting this message out and eventually get some more national TV exposure. And then this thing will start to take on a life of its own. Yeah. So the book's Rich Habits, your first book out of a few that you're working on, a couple that you've already done now that you're working on another. But tell us the background of Rich Habits just for, for the people that aren't familiar. Sure. And then then after that, I want to get you know some of the juicy... Yeah, I want to know what the habits are. <laughs> yeah, I know. Like, this is like the longest intro. <laughs> but this is good. This is ex- builds up excitement, right? So yeah, tell us about well, the book and the research and all that kind of stuff. Well, the, the whole genesis of Rich Habits was this research I'd done for five years. And the research was prompted by a small business client of mine that was failing. And he had come in here one night and he was crying and he, he was business was going under. He ended up filing for bankruptcy. But he asked me, what is it that my successful clients are doing that he's not doing? And what is it that he's doing wrong that he shouldn't be doing? And I started doing research, uh, Googled stuff. And I, the only thing I could come up with was The Millionaire Next Door and a lot of Internet articles that really didn't help me much. And the Millionaire Next Door was helpful in that it gave me the idea that, hey, you know, this guy, Dr. Thomas Stanley, he was so close to getting this right. He unfortunately he just focused on high net worth individuals and he didn't get ah. into how they became rich, you know, and he certainly didn't get into what poor people are doing wrong, which is the other side of the coin. I mean, it's, it's important to know what to do, but it's more important to know what not to do. Mm-hmm. Right. So I said, well, if there's no research out there, I've you know, I guess I'm going to start doing some research and I'm very analytical. I guess that's the CPA side of me. And so I started, I stumbled in the beginning because the key was coming up with the right questions to ask. Yeah. And so that took me about six months and I finally came up with what I call my 20 question list, but it's really, it's 144 questions that I broke up into 20 categories. When you do the math, it's like something like 59,000 questions I asked because I, I interviewed 200 and 33 wealthy people and 128 poor people. Uh, so I gathered all of this information. I, I ended up putting it all on Excel worksheets and I'm really good at Excel. And then I summarized it into what is kind of a little, little famous. It's my research summary. It's out there. Everybody asked for it. So I 
have this research summary that has about 333 habits that separate the haves from the have-nots. And I got enough feedback from people that were having success with the rich habits. And a couple of them said, you got to write a book on this stuff. You got to get it out there. This is, if you don't, you're just selfish. And so uh, I said, I've, I've never written a book before. The best I've done was written, you know, technical articles. I'm good at that. Uh, you know, accounting, tax, and stuff like that. But uh, I said, I, I I don't know if I could write a book. So whenever I don't know something, my rule of thumb is get three books on it and read them. Nice. And so I bought three books on how to write a book. I realized after re- reading the three books, hey, this isn't this is a lot easier than the CPA exam. Uh, so so I said, I'm, I'm going to write a book. I can do this. And what's interesting about this is, and this goes to really pursuing your dreams and why it's so important. I had no idea I had an inner or innate talent for writing. I do. I know that now. I'm a good writer. Huh. I just have that ability. And I would have never, ever known that if I had never done this research and written a book. I now know I'm a good writer. I have the ability, the skills, the know-how to really create a story and to communicate information in writing. I never knew I had that. I do. And I have to be grateful that, you know, this roundabout way I got, I got there. Yeah. Well, dude, it takes me like four hours to write like six paragraphs on my blog. So like, <laughs> I admire that. I wish I had the innate ability. Yeah. I don't know where it comes from, but you know, this is the thing though. When you pursue something that you're passionate about it, you're, you're, I call it the old brain, your subconscious. It's been around for millions of years, whereas the new brain, the conscious, has only been around for a couple of hundred thousand years. The old brain really knows stuff that the new brain doesn't know. So it's given me this subconscious uh, intuition and insight. Hey, write a book, write a book. And so there's a reason for it. You know, when you follow, follow your intuition and your gut feelings, it uh, leads you down to paths that you would and it exposes the talents that you never knew you had. Well, I'll say this too. I think persistence and the dream, um, the persistence definitely plays a part because you went, you just went through your story of how it took you, you know, eight or nine years to finally get this book out there. And most people like myself, I'd like to think I'm a hustler, but eight years of failing nine years, that's a hard pill to swallow. Yeah. So yeah. the fact that you kept going at like imagine if all these people said, oh, this book's awesome, which they all did. Oh, I love it. Get this out there. You, you, you know, don't be selfish. Put it out there. Oh, by the way, it's going to take you nine years. <laughs> right? I would have never, never attempted it. In, actually, in hindsight, I think about this a lot. In hindsight, if I could go back in time, I would never write Rich Habits because of, of how much the emotional downside that I ha- I've gone through in 2010, 2011, and 2012, it was not worth it. I don't care if I make a billion dollars off of this. The depression that I went through, because I've never really failed at anything. This book business is so outside your control. These people like Fifty Shades of Grey, they have absolutely no control over the success. I don't care. These influencers out there who grab onto this stuff, they're the ones that make or break you. And trying to get an influencer to, you know, hop on board and, and oh, become yeah. your cheerleader. Oh, yeah. All it's right. hard to do. Well, it'd be interesting, too, if you started out as a blogger or an online influencer and then you came out with a book. Like if I wrote a book, like I don't have any dreams to write a books and all that. It's like I admire you guys that do it. It's just not it doesn't excite me personally. But if I were to write a book on 
something and I try to sell it, I'd automatically get sold and, and get, you know, I don't know how super successful I'd get, but we already have communities built in, yeah. right? So for us, it's a lot easier versus starting from scratch, trying to sell something and no online influence at all. And you're right. It is turning online a lot more than the, I mean, the media is still obviously big TV and all that, you know, but that's, I'm glad that Farnoosh found it. Cause you know, that's, I mean, I love your stuff. I reference it at least every four or five months on my blog. And it's always like in my head. I mean, shit, I'm holding your book right here in my hand. Uh, <laughs> because I can't what? tell you how much I appreciate that because, you know, you're one of those influencers you have to have on your team. And, and they're hard to come by, Jay. I mean, they really are. These I, mean, I have people that just pirate my information. I don't even get a thank you. I see it a lot on like Inc. Magazine and on Fast Company and, mm-hmm. and these people writing articles that I just wrote. And I'm like, geez. Those are, you know, those are professional ones too. Huh, it, that drives me crazy more than anything. But as Darren Hardy says, the former publisher of Success Magazine, he just resigned. Uh, as Darren Hardy said, you know you're, you're on the path to success when people start to imitate you. Yeah, mm. sir. So I feel that that's, I guess, uh, I'm grateful for that. I should be grateful. Yes. Now, I know Paula's about to ask this, so I'm going to beat her. What are some <laughs> of these rich habits? <laughs> well, you know, I'm, I'm updating rich habits. I'm coming out with a second edition. Okay. The original rich habits are 10 core habits. I call them keystone habits. Okay. They're things like one of the first rich habits is you've got to become aware of the habits that you have. So that's the first rich habit. It's, it's really an exercise to evaluate what your habits are. You know, do you have good habits or do you have bad habits? Most of us are completely oblivious. So I take the the readers through a process wherein they actually track their habits for a couple of days and then they do this grading process. You know, is it a a plus is a good habit, a uh, a minus is a bad habit. And so you go through all that and you say, oh, okay, I have, like most people, a lot of bad habits. And so your, your goal is to do two things. One is to adopt one or two, all it takes is one or two rich habits to really transform your life. Okay. Uh, and uh, maybe try and get rid of a couple of the bad habits. A- and so it's, it's a, you want to baby step it. It's a, it, you're never going to succeed if you try and change all of them at once. It's just impossible. The brain can't handle it. Yeah. So you want to just, uh, you know, one or two habit changes. And then maybe two or three months from now or four months from now, you make one or two more ch- habit changes. If you keep at it, uh, that eventually you're going to have all of these good habits and eliminate a lot of these bad habits. Uh, and the interesting thing about just adopting one rich habit, let's say, like, for example, reading every day for education, okay. uh, 30 minutes or more. So that's a rich habit. Well, it's actually like a double in baseball in, in the sense that not only does it create opportunity, something I call opportunity luck, that's the opportunity for luck to occur in your life, but it also uh, waters down or, or, or is like a force field against something I call detrimental luck, which is the opposite of opportunity luck. It's bad, the bad luck okay. that's created by your bad habits. So you're, you're actually a good example, better than reading would be, let's say you engage in exercise, daily exercise, 30 minutes a day, and you start losing weight. Uh, and then the opportunity luck, if you want, if you will, is good health. Uh, but the detrimental luck you avoid or you prevent is, say, type 2 diabetes, heart disease. These rich habits are really intended to have a double whammy effect on your life. Plus, they're keystone habits, and keystone habits are different than ordinary habits in that 
they're like predators. They devour ordinary habits. So staying with the exercise rich habits. So if you exercise aerobically every day and then you start losing weight because you're overweight, people say, Hey, you know, Jay, you're looking great. What are you doing? Um, you know, (laughs) I read rich habits. You you start thinking, oh, I, I like that because it taps into your emotional part of the brain, right? And you say, oh, I'm going to cut back on cigarettes and I'm going to back off on some junk food. Yeah. Those are two poverty habits, right? So one rich habit can eliminate two, three or more poverty habits without without you having to will it out of existence because the rich habit taps into your emotional part of your brain. And whenever you engage your emotion, there's a difference between passion energy and willpower energy. Willpower energy comes from your uh, neocortex, your conscious part of your brain. You have to, you know, to study for something for two or three hours, that requires willpower. But when you find something that really stirs your emotion, that comes from the lower brain, the, the emotional part of the brain. And there's infinitely more energy that the brain calls forth to glucose mainly, to power that activity. Whereas the willpower part of the brain, it only calls uh, enough energy to get the job done. This passion energy that comes from the emotional part of the brain, it gets you wanting to do exercise more and more and more, and it overpowers those ordinary habits because it's tied to, to the emotion. So th- those are just you know a couple of the rich habits. I, I can go on and on. Yeah. Yeah. Do like four or five. Like I have, I, I printed out some just so I can do some. Like one of Here's like two of my favorites. 6% of wealthy say what's on their mind versus 69% of poor people. That's pretty crazy. That's a big ass jump. Yeah. I tell you, that one knocked me off my chair because in my family, there were 11 in my family, eight kids, my mom and dad, and my aunt Peg. My aunt Peg, if you ever remember the Munsters, that TV show, The Munsters? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's an old one, but yeah. Okay. So, <laughs> Paulo so does anybody it, that so. remembers The Munsters, if you ever remember what grandpa Munster looked like. That was what my aunt Peg looked like. <laughs> and my aunt Peg was crazy. She was funny as anything. She was a spitball, but she, she was crazy. And one of the things that she taught me and she used to profess as if it were a superior character trait was speaking your mind, uh, say what's on your mind. Uh, that's the right way to go through life. And I listened to her and I, you know, I would say what's on my mind. If, if someone, you know, was, wearing an outfit that looked stupid. I said, that's the stupidest outfit I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> and, but that was my Aunt Peg's programming. You know, we, we pick up our habits from our, mostly from our parents, but also from other influencers in, in our environment. And, and my Aunt Peg was an influencer. So I picked up that poverty habit of speaking your mind. And it wasn't until I did this research that I found out, my God, I have this horrific poverty habit of saying what's on my mind. And it's gotten me in trouble. It really took a little bit of effort to get rid of that poverty habit, and I've done it. You know, every now and then I slip up, but I'm conscious of it now. I'm I'm aware of it, so I'm looking out for it. And uh, so I I don't speak my mind anymore because when you speak your mind, as I found in my research, the wealthy anyway they say it damages relationships. Yeah, those relationships you could have been fostering for three, four, five years, and. These are relationships that could help get your kids into a college, you know, by writing letters of recommendation. They can get your kids internships. They can maybe help you get a, a promotion or any number of things. You, you name it. They open the door mm-hmm. to opportunity. And when you speak your mind, you have that poverty habit of speaking your mind. You damage that relationship 
and you close that door. And so wealthy people are smart that way. They know this. These are the things that they knew their parents taught them primarily uh, that the rest of us don't know. So that's why I think that rich habit is more profound than a lot of the others, because I think everybody, including Jack Welch of GE, believes otherwise. They believe you should speak your mind. Right. right. Uh, and, you know, by the way, Jack Welch, even though he's famous and everything, that was a character flaw of his, even though he touts it as a a positive character attribute. I know this because my old boss worked for him for 22 years and they used to call him a name <laughs> because of this character flaw that he had of speaking his mind. They, people did not like him that worked for him. You know, they were not sorry that he left. You know, the problem is you get famous people out there saying you should speak your mind and it's actually a poverty habit and they're doing people a disservice. Right. Plus, it puts out so much negative energy, too. Like, I feel like there's a whole bunch to, to that one. I mean, unless you're saying something positive, speaking your mind. But, you know, most people, it's not so positive what comes out of there. That's uh, right. That's <laughs> so another never- one is uh, 6% of wealthy watch reality TV for 78% for poor people. That's yeah. a huge one, too. Yeah. You know, one of the wealthy people in, in my study, because at the time I was doing my research, that show Survivor, that was kind of famous back then. And one of the wealthy people were talking about that show. And they said, why on earth would I want to watch that show when my life is so much more interesting? Like, <laughs> you know, I would rather spend time with my kids or my wife than to sit there and watch a stupid reality TV show. But, you know, the poor people do that. They watch these shows. And honestly, I think the reason they do is their lives are so unhappy and and maybe even miserable that when they see someone on TV who's actually worse off than they are, Mm. like like any of the housewives stuff, if you watch any of that, those people are train wrecks. Mm -hmm. Uh, If if you watch them, you feel better about yourself. Yeah. That's why I I used to do blog coaching and people like always want to put out all the positive stuff they're doing. Oh, my life is awesome. Oh, my blog has this. And I'm like, dude, you need to start talking about all the crap parts of your life, the crap part, like how hard it is blogging sometimes, all the stupid stuff you've spent money on that you regret, like all the stuff that make you like a real person. So right. A, like you're a normal person, but B, like people feel better when they read that about you. You're like, good luck, JF sub two. Like I don't feel so bad now, right? Like he screwed up more than I did. <laughs> That's such a good point. You know, there's a person that I really admire who is a very successful business person and I'm part of his financial group. And John has this unique ability. He gets, despite the fact that he's uber successful, when he gets up there to share, to give us insight and best practices and stuff like that, all he talks about is his screw ups. And I, that's the stuff that I care about. I don't really, I already know I'm supposed to do A, B, and C. I already know that. And I'm trying to. Believe me, I'm trying. The information I need is what not to do. And I think that's why the rich habits resonate so much with people is I'm not only just spitting out, hey, do this. This is the right thing to do. I'm also providing some insight and data and information on what you shouldn't be doing. That resonates with you because you can see it in your own life. You could see that you gossip, for example. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God, I, I have that poverty habit. I gossip. I speak my mind. I, I got to stop doing that. So most of the time we can stop doing some of the bad things. It's harder, in my opinion, to adopt you know, a success habit than it is just to shut down uh, something that you shouldn't be doing. You know, Right. That's true. 
Let's see what else we got here. Oh, I know something else you're really good at. And you've actually on this show have already called Paula and I's name like three or four times. You you mm-hmm. are a master of names. And if I recall correctly, I remember a year or two ago, I, I got a picture of your wallet. You sent me all the stuff that's in your wallet, right. um, like just to be you know a cool little series. And you had like a notepad in there and you said something yeah. about why it's important for names. And I, I'm horrible at names. So one, tell me if that's a uh, rich habit. And then two, how... Um, I cannot forget people's names. <laughs> yeah, so good. We're we're in the same boat. We both stink at names. <laughs> you know, even to this day, if I don't write it down, Jay and Paula, if I don't write down your your name uh, into my book, and I'm I'm so overt right now that I just whip out the book and I say, "What's your name?" and I write it. Down. <laughs> I don't even care anymore. I'm I'm, be- I'm beyond being self conscious about it. Right. <laughs> so if I don't write it down within five seconds, I've already forgotten your name. <laughs> but the act of writing it down is so powerful. And I learned this from reading different biographies on Abraham Lincoln. I don't know if you know this, but Abraham Lincoln, he used to write his own speeches, right? But everybody said his recall is amazing. You know, he wrote this speech and and he's remembering it word for word. Well, what Abraham Lincoln did to remember things was not sit there and just memorize it. He wrote it down three or more times. Mm. And he, he always said in his in the different biographies that the act of writing it did something in his brain that allowed him to remember it. So I started doing that, and I'll be damned, it works for me too. If I write, <laughs> if I write something down, I remember it, and it sticks with me. And the more times I write it down, the better the memory. So uh, I think you know writing down the names is key you can't be self conscious you just got to write it down but there's also something that i use i think it's absolutely genius i use it all the time it's called the grouping strategy and it's very simply this so we all have different groups of friends or there's parts of our lives you know that maybe we're basketball players and so we have basketball friends and maybe we have tennis players and we have tennis friends maybe we have drinking buddies and there are drinking friends mm-hmm. so what i I've done is I've created certain categories. Uh, and for me, it's, uh, I have tennis, I have my you know, Colts neck, which is an area I live in. So I have a Colts neck category. I had my, when my daughter was playing volleyball, I had Kirsten volleyball category. And what I would do is I would put the names of the people that I met in these different groups. And before I went to the event, like the volleyball, is a great example because I really use this technique. So I would get everybody's name in the beginning and write it down. And then when I would meet them in the next volleyball game, I would, uh, you know, go, Hey, Nate, how are you? Hey, John. Hey, Sue, Mm. what's going on? And they would be looking at me like, I don't even remember this guy. Yeah. They love hearing. That's what someone said that people love hearing their own names. Yeah, they do. Really powerful. I'll tell you how much they like it. (laughs) The next time that I meet them, Th- that time when they when I tell them their name, the next time that I meet them, they get my name and they never forget it. Nice. I have people to this day that I'll see, you know, who are at the volleyball games. They- they'll I'll see them at the supermarket or wherever and they'll remember my name mm. because in their mind, I took the time to remember their name. Now, of course, they think I'm uh, like a genius. Oh, that Tom, he's just superior than to all other human beings. <laughs> if they had any idea you know, that I had this whole process of name, remembering names, you know, they, they wouldn't think so highly of me. <laughs> not but, as exciting. <laughs> right. Not as exciting. 
going back to your wallet here, because I, I want to, I've always been curious, curious about this. I never asked you. One of the things you have in there, you said, my get out of tickets 200 club gold card. Yeah. Do you, what is that? Get out of How, where, what is it? How do you get one of those? <laughs> well, the 200 club started in Chicago. It's not everywhere, but it's in New Jersey. It's in New York. It's in, in the major cities, I guess. What it is is, um, so if somebody is a member of the police force, the local police force, or a state trooper, or if they're a firefighter or emergency service uh, personnel, if they die on the job, uh, their widows get an insurance policy that I think I think is either three hundred to five hundred thousand dollars. Okay, wow. Yeah, so it's a good cause, and and to these people, uh, they you know, the policemen and, and the others, they value it so much because it's, it's, it's personalized. That card, what it says is that person is, if I die, going to help provide for my family. Wow. So it becomes an emotional connection. And I'm a hundred percent success rate on that. I was coming home late one night from tax season. It was like nine 45. I was really tired and I did something that he calls a California roll at a stop sign. Okay. I guess it's not stopping and I just roll through it. Who's I was the only car on the road except for him. Okay. And so he pulled me over and he, he was going to give me a ticket. He was adamant. He was going to give me a ticket. So I gave him my license, my registration and my 200 club card. He practically threw that 200 club card back at me and he said, I'm going to let you off this time. But, don't do that uh, again. Wait, so how, how do you get the card? Do you donate to the fund or something? Like, how do you, yeah, if, how do you get in possession of it? If you Google 200 Club, uh-huh. uh, you can you can find – I'm, I'm imagining that you'll find one close to your area, and it's a okay. really good cause. Um, okay. We have one in New Jersey. Okay. I know, I know there's uh, – I know there's one in New York because I got pulled over in New York. Okay. Uh, I used it in Pennsylvania. I got away with it, so I imagine they have one there. If you have it – and you get pulled over and you give it to the police officer. I'm not saying you'll get out. You right. Know. It's just a good shot. Like if they see it, there's a good shot yeah. of you. But yeah, I remember there's like some stickers in Maryland where I live. Like someone said, donate 20 bucks and you get the sticker. And I was like, ah, oh, whatever. I'll put it on there. I never got pulled over, but I imagine I don't It's been a couple of years, but I think that's why I bought it. Like if someone pulls me over, maybe they'll see the sticker. <laughs> well, you know, at one time I had all these 200 club stickers on because I'm a member every year. Okay. Gotcha. gotcha. And, and they, and they, they don't even see them. Okay. So you but need the card. You them, <laughs> when you hand them your license and this 200 club card, they look at it and they say, Oh, okay. He's one of the 1% or one half of 1% or whatever that are helping my family. So I'm going to let them off. You know, 99% of the other people don't have it. So, right. Yeah. They don't, they don't give that, that credit very often. I imagine. Listen, if somebody was going to provide a $500,000 life insurance policy for my family, you bet your butt I'm going to bend over backwards for them. Right. Right. Uh, okay. Let's see here. Paula, you have any questions? I, I want to do a speed round before yeah. we wrap up, but, but I've been hogging. So no, I, don't know I, I was actually thinking this would be a great time for the speed round. <laughs> <laughs> Now, some of these questions I'm, I'm going to make up now because um, from talking to you, um, I'll, I'll start with one that I've also been curious. All right. So basically, I'll ask you the question. You just tell me this one. You might have to go into. Do I need a helmet for this? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I need to crack open your beer. 
some of these are easy. I'll, I'll start with one that's just a, just a curiosity thing. Um, all right. So the first question is, uh, when I was reading your bio, you have a master's degree in taxation. Right. What the hell is that? Well, you know, Jay, I'm so glad you brought it up because I've written so much about this. I put my ladder on my father's wall. Okay. Uh, you know, when we were poor and I was in college, I was a sophomore and uh, I asked him, I said, I have to matriculate. I have to pick a major. You have any suggestions? And he said, yeah, a major in accounting. You'll never starve. <laughs> and nice. at the time, that meant a lot because, you know, even though we weren't starving, we were real poor. So I put my ladder on my dad's wall and then I kept climbing that ladder. And um, I, I got my, you know, my CPA. I got my master's in tax. I got all sorts of other licenses, too. All right. So that so that's like a nickname for CPA and all this other stuff. I was hoping it was like an actual master's of taxation. No, it isn't. I, I oh, it is? Three years of grad school to get my master's in tax. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, very cool. All right. Question two. Are you a millionaire now? On paper, I am. But okay. um, no. Because I, I, to me, a millionaire, at least based on my – well, a millionaire is, is someone in my mind – that doesn't have a net worth of a million dollars. Okay. They have net liquid assets of a million dollars. There's a big difference. Right, right. So, so you, I'm not. I, I have a net worth, I guess, uh, you know, on paper. I just did – I have to do these personal financial statements for the bank every year. So I just did one and it was like $1.6 million. But Oh, juicy numbers. I like it. Meaning, yes. meaning absolutely meaningless. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, not, not if you have – if that net worth is zero. Well, I guess it could depend. Yeah. Too. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, yeah. Not, it's, it's better than zero, but yeah. I would rather have $1 million than, in the bank than $1.6 in net worth. Okay. Very interesting. All right. Best decision you've ever made financially or one you suck at if that one's easier to come up with? <laughs> Majoring in accounting. Going which which the, department does that go Yeah, which one did that fall into? <laughs> yeah, that was the not good one because <laughs> okay. although I, I do love – consulting and, and advising clients. That's the one passion I have is I love sharing information. It, it This industry is, uh, you know, you don't make a lot of money in this industry. It's just the nature of the beast. Well, this might make your next uh, question a little easier. If you had to stop doing one thing, writing, speaking, or running your financial firm? Uh, running the financial firm. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, if you could share a beer with anyone in the world, dead or alive? My old answer would be Winston Churchill. My new answer would be Elon Musk. Oh. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a good one. All right. And the last question, what is the weirdest thing in your house? And don't say yourself. <laughs> my basement, my home office, mm-hmm. it looks like who did it and ran. <laughs> uh, you talk about that wallet, doing a picture of the wallet. If you took a picture of my home office, I don't think anybody would buy one of my books. <laughs> Or they wouldn't think you're good at accounting either, right? Isn't that isn't that you a know, I have to be neat? I have a beautiful office here in Rahway, but my home office is actually a lab. I imagine when Edison was starting out, his looked just as bad. I it, it looks like a train wreck. I have a table that I bought from Staples like about 30 years ago that you use for picnics. That's <laughs> that's my desk because it's long and I can spread out everything. <laughs> All right. And it's terrible. <laughs> Oh, man. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, dude. We'll, we'll link to a lot of your stuff. So everyone, we went, we covered a lot of info, but a lot of my favorite articles from you will link to and link to your books. And um, oh, tell us about all your books just so people can get a sure. sense. So the follow-up book to Rich Habits was Rich Kids. 
This was probably one of my best books. You know, even though it's you think it's for kids, it really isn't. It's for everybody, but it's really about helping people mentor the next generation. But there's, a, you know, it's all my research is in there. A lot of my research is in there, so it's valuable. I just finished my third book, Change Your Habits, Change Your Life. This is a little deviation from the story, fictional story-based books that I write. It's a, really a how-to book because there's just too much data and information that I have. I couldn't weave it into a storyline. And uh, then I'm, I'm updating Rich Habits, the second edition. And this is going to be like Rich Habits, the original book on steroids, because I'm increasing the number of Rich Habits to 30. There's there's a lot more, but I'm trying to provide the, the main ones. Yeah. And I'm also including my research summary in there, which has over, three, over 300 of the, the differences between the habits of the rich and the poor. So it's going to be a really powerful update to Rich Habits. I think this one might beat The Millionaire Next Door at some point. This could be the one if any book could topple it, right? To me, this book is going to be better than Think and Grow Rich. Whether it sells like that is, uh, it's outside my control, but it is going to be a better book. Well, thank you, sir. I appreciate your time, man. I appreciate the thoughts and um, it's, it's been fun not finally talking to you after all these years. Yeah, same here. We should have done this a long time ago. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. All, all right. right. Thank you, Paula. Thank you. Thank you for coming on. We'll see you online. Don't stop tweeting. We'd like to thank our sponsors. Nobody. We don't have any sponsors, but we would like to thank you for listening, because if you weren't, we'd just be talking to ourselves, and that would be weird. If you liked us, please do the following three things. Number one, subscribe to this show on iTunes. Number two, download as many episodes as you'd like. And number three, leave us an iTunes review. If you'd like to know more about us, check out themoneyshow.co. That's themoneyshow.co.